Welcome. You're listening to the Best Tech Practices for Small Organizations podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Wells, and this podcast is presented by NW Techs and is designed to educate small and medium-sized organizations on the best practices for managing their IT. We cover topics ranging from cybersecurity to business communication to file storage to working remotely. In this episode, we're continuing our series titled Law Firms and Technology. This series, we're highlighting law firm leaders from around the world on all things cybersecurity, IT, and managing the best practices for their IT systems. I have the privilege of talking to Francine Fieldman Grising. She is the founder and managing partner of Grising Law LLC, a woman-owned law firm based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, with offices in Arizona, New York, and Ohio. She has over 38 years of experience representing clients in complex business transactions, high-stake litigation, and alternative dispute resolution matters. She's a highly sought after speaker and writer and has been recognized by numerous legal rankings for her expertise in litigation and employment law. Thanks for being on the show today, Franzine. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me, Taylor. It's a pleasure to be here. Fantastic. You're very welcome. Well, let's jump right into the questions. The first question I have is a rather generic one, but one that I'd like to kind of dive deep into is what are you personally excited about when it comes to utilizing technology in your law firm and looking down the road? What are some things you're looking forward to in regards to technology and utilizing it? Well, there are so many, but one of the things that I think really uh, puts my views in perspective is that I have been practicing nearly four decades, which is a long time. So when I first started practicing, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have voicemail. We didn't have computers on our desks. We didn't have um, you know, te- personal tablets or similar devices. We didn't have um, you know, social media. None of this was available to us. So if you know something absolutely had to get there right away, you either used fax if it wasn't too long or it was a big bundle of documents, you would use Federal Express in its early incarnations. So that changed things dramatically for us because over the past four decades, technology has become ubiquitous. And as a result, I think in many ways it's made our lives easier and in others harder. Take, for example, working parents. When I was a working parent with a young child, we didn't have any of these technologies available to us. So if you really had to do something, your option was to go into the office and on the weekend or stay late at night or to drag home massive amounts of materials to try to work it, fit it in over your weekend at home. Well, you know how different it is now. So I'm happy to say that because uh, my team is really entrepreneurial, we were, I think, ahead of the curve for a firm of our size in being technologically savvy and up to speed in that when we started the firm, we tried to use the same software and case management tools that were at the mega firms we had worked at, even though we were a small startup and it was quite expensive given that situation, but we did it anyway. And I'm glad we did because for 10 years before COVID hit and remote work became ubiquitous, we were already working remotely so much of the time and really equipped for that. What I think is the biggest change since the remote work has escalated, and I think it's here to stay, at least in a hybrid way, is that Zoom was not a part of my daily life before COVID. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not that I never went on a Microsoft Teams meeting or never went on a Zoom call or a Google equivalent. I did, and many of our clients use those devices to save money by not having people have to travel all over to meet. 
but it wasn't clearly something I did every single day. So to me, those types of platforms, Microsoft version, Google has one, Zoom, and there's probably countless others, have profoundly changed the way we practice law and made it much more economical for us and for clients. So looking forward, what I um, really look forward to is technology that makes it even easier to have a meeting but feel like you're more in the same room. Sometimes I, I find with Zoom that I might only see one or two people, or it's hard to see everyone. And I think there'll be uh, systems that are going to make it even easier and better. The other thing that I think will be really interesting is I already have a device where I can handwrite on a tablet and the tablet will automatically convert my work to typed version. But I think we're going to be able to even more and more be using technology to work in a document together over the system, looking at one another and looking at the document and discussing edits and writing them in and having them uh, you know, transformed into a new document. Those types of things I think are going to be uh, really incredible. And I, I fear that we're also going to start having people doing more and more Zoom calls from their moving cars, which is going to be a disaster, I think. <laughs> but I think that the ability to do these things while traveling and the enhanced ability to do it on planes and trains, et cetera, is going to be something we're going to see in the future as well. Francine, thank you so much. And uh, I know before this call, you, you like to go by Fran. So I'll mention that throughout here as well. But you mentioned a couple really good points, and I'd love to dive a little bit deeper into them. The first one you mentioned was that before COVID and before the pandemic, you weren't, you know, Zoom calls or video conferencing wasn't as prevalent. And what I've noticed, people weren't meeting in person, obviously, video conferencing was the next best thing. Where, and this question is in relation to video conferencing versus phone calls. Do you think, and something that I personally miss is a phone call. And it seems that we have no phone calls kind of have gone extinct in a lot of ways and versus, you know, everyone just jumps into a video call. And the question's really around how video conferencing is exponentially more taxing than a phone call? And do you think phone calls are dead for lack of a better expression? Or do you think phone calls are going to come back in a way where we'll have phone calls still, but we'll also do video conferencing and we'll also do in-person? What's your thoughts on, on those three different mediums and, and how they'll yeah. all balance out down the road? So I actually really like phone calls as well without the Zoom component. And I know a lot of members of my team do. I think the Zoom is more tiring, more taxing, more demanding because, for example, as you know, I didn't know whether we were going to be just recording or also being on camera because although a podcast just means audio, I've had people say they want to do a podcast, but then they're telling me they're filming me. So totally. um, the issue with the filming is that I think one, it's way more distracting. And what I find more distracting is my own picture on the screen screen. Mm. I think that's really distracting. But in addition, you have to be obviously much more conscious on a Zoom call than you do on a phone call about what the distractions are in your setting. So if you're working from home, do you have family members around? Do they have things going on? Is a pet or a young child or even frankly, a mature spouse showing up behind you walking back and forth? I've had that happen on calls so many times where people on the calls, on the Zooms or have it on a Zoom or similar platform are having activity in the room around them that I can see. Mm. I also find people's environments sometimes distracting and I absolutely hate virtual backgrounds. To me, mm. they're the most distracting because as the person moves, the background doesn't quite <laughs> adjust. So there's like this 
weird thing around their body. So like a bit like um, in space or something. <laughs> distracting. And I also find it more exhausting because I feel like I have to pay attention to too many things. Like, is there something going on with my hair or whatever? I don't have as much of a background issue, at least visual background issue, because I intentionally have a blank wall in my office and I do my calls with that as the background because I'm not, I don't wish to share the other things in my office, my family photos and the like. So I think that phone calls are easier for many things. Um, One setting in which I've seen it come up with legal work, the, let's see, the contrast between a phone call and a platform where you're also video conversing in some way and you can see one another is that I've done a lot of arbitrations and mediations during COVID. Mm. And I've seen, and in some of them, I'm the advocate, I represent a party and in others, I'm the neutral, I'm the mediator or the arbitrator. And when I've been the advocate, the lawyer for one of the parties, I really hate when the neutral doesn't use a video conference and only Mm. talks to us by phone. And the reason for that is I think it's very hard to establish credibility when you're not looking at someone. And similarly, so for clients, I think it's hard for them to have as much confidence in the process when they can't actually see the person who's either facilitating the mediation or going to make a decision. Now, I haven't seen arbitration, much arbitration without the video, but I have seen a lot of settlement conferences and mediation done only by telephone. And I don't like it at all. I think something's really lost. Interesting. Thanks for sharing. And yeah, I think you're hinting at the power of a video, right? It is definitely a more intimate for all the reasons you just mentioned. It's a more intimate platform uh, to communicate, but it is also more taxing and demanding. And to your point on seeing ourselves on camera, there's no other physical environment where we have a mirror of ourselves for the entire meeting. And so that's so unnatural, right? I have a feed of yourself and I try to, whenever I'm on a video conference to minimize my feed if at all possible. It's not impossible on all platforms, but I wish all platforms had the ability to just, to, you know, look at yourself at the very beginning, make sure everything looks great and then minimize for the rest of the meeting because it's so, so unnatural to see yourself on camera for an hour long and to constantly be checking in on how you look and, or whatnot. So definitely to your point there, love to talk about the collaboration aspect. And you're mentioning having the ability to look at a document together and, and with a client or with your team, tell me about what tools you're using now to collaborate and which ones have you found to be super helpful in regards to being able to have, you know, synchronous collaboration you know, across multiple locations or with your clients virtually? So the two things that I find most helpful is I actually find any kind of platform, including the one we're on now, where you can share your screen to be very helpful. And I like that. That's very simple. That's not even everybody going into the document at the same time, which I have to say I I don't do. And I probably won't have to do because others on my team will be doing it and they're much more facile than I am in doing that because sure. I do okay. think generationally there's a difference uh, with the people who are who grew up with the device in their hands and those of us who didn't but the other thing that I really like is um, our FTP site or anything analogous to that I love the fact that you can put documents into a shared place in the cloud and everyone can put their documents in with security and share those documents and make comments in a shared space. 
and it can come from multiple different sources at once. To me, those are the two things that I find most helpful in dealing with the fact that we're working remotely and we can't sit in the same room, but we're, but we're also trying to collaborate. They, I think those two things make a big difference in efficiency and economy as well. I love it. Yeah, that's phenomenal. And I completely agree as far as having a cloud-based area where you can see different versions of a document, have comments, and then and then share, upload, download based upon your needs. Fantastic. I'd love to talk about kind of the client experience. And you, and you hinted at this at the very beginning of our conversation as far as clients wanting to meet over Zoom or in person. You know, post-pandemic, assuming there is some sort of new normal, where do you see your client's expectation for meeting in person? Do you think they're going to want to meet in person a majority of the time? Do you think it's going to be 50-50? Or is it going to be more of a, you know, depending on the type of meeting? And if it is based on the type of meeting, what types of meetings? do you think your clients are going to want to be in person? Okay. So just to put in perspective, I have a relatively small sized firm and, but we have a very sophisticated client base. And I think the type of clients you're serving is important in assessing how much they're going to want to meet in person. What I mean by that is we represent lots of fortune 500 companies major nonprofit organizations, government entities. We also represent privately held businesses ranging from very high revenue to relatively new or startup type businesses. And we represent nonprofits of all sizes and lots of government entities, but we also represent individuals. Some are very sophisticated executives and lawyers and the like, and others are people who've never needed a lawyer before. So our client base is quite diverse and a significant range. So what they will want depends a lot on that. What do I mean by that? I think big companies, governments, nonprofits, for the most part, the more they can do virtually or by phone in some way, and the less in person, the better for most things, because it just saves so much money in legal expense. I think individuals, especially if they, it, it's a very personal matter for them, if they feel like it's really either financially significant or they, they have it's a principle they want to prove or they've been physically injured. Uh, that group of clients, I think, is going to want to meet in person more than ever because they miss the personal touch and you cannot get it in the same way, in my view, if you're not in person. So that's sort of client wise on type of proceeding. I think a lot of routine counseling or you know dealing negotiating documents is going to happen virtually because of the enormous savings of time and money. The things that I think will be hybrid and be more likely to have people meeting in person versus using technology to do so are things where credibility needs to be assessed. So I think people will want more than ever to be able to have argument oral arguments in court in person. I think people want it, will want in-person depositions where everyone involved is in the same geographic place. So for mm. example, if the witness and the lawyers are all based in New York City, I think they're more likely to do it in person. However, if you have a cross-country situation and the witness is in California and a lawyer is in Chicago and another's in New York or wherever they are, I think that's going to go virtually because the savings are extraordinary. Imagine the difference between having a lawyer, for example, get on a plane, fly cross-country, take or defend a deposition on the other coast, then spend another day flying back. So something that they could do in a day, let's say from their 
office, they now have to spend three days and the cost to the client in terms of hourly rate, if that's how it's done, is, is quite different. So I think it's going to be a balancing also of also how critical is the witness. For example, if it's a central witness in a case, well, your client may be more likely to say, okay, I'll pay for you to go travel because I want you to defend that witness in person, or I want you to question that witness in person. So those are the factors that I think are going to be in mm. play and uh, in evaluating in each instance, whether to be on the phone, using a virtual platform where you can see one another, or um, doing something in the, you know, literally in the same room. Interesting. You kind of piqued my curiosity around all the different variables and the different options, especially for cross-country travel and people in different states or different jurisdictions. I don't know if there's already a precedent for this or if it if it's going to be created, but from your knowledge, Fran, how who will decide whether it's virtual or in person? Is it up to the plaintiffs or is it up to the judicial system? Is it up to the lawyers? Who decides whether, hey, everyone needs to be in person, or it's going to be a hybrid, or it's going to be all virtual? That is such a good question, Taylor, uh, because the answer is similarly complicated. Okay. That's what I mean by that. So uh, when we're talking about what we've just been talking about, let's say depositions or oral arguments, when we're talking about disputes or litigation, alternate dispute resolution, mediation, arbitration, settlement conferences, that sort of thing, we're talking of one type of practice. If we're talking about more transactional practice, which would be, you know, a real estate deal, buying and selling a business, a securities offering, uh, you know, a tax matter, probably uh, helping someone do their trust and estate plan. It, it really depends on what the type of service, the le- type of legal services involved. I'm going to focus on litigation because, frankly, I've been a litigator okay. for my career. Uh, I do some transactional work, and, but my focus is litigation. And I think these issues are much, much more complicated in litigation. So over the past year, I have served as an advocate and as a neutral in a lot of proceedings. And in the proceedings, particularly where I've been the neutral, frequently the parties have fought about this very issue. So here's where it starts. If you are in a dispute situation, the first place to look is, is there an agreement between the parties that gave rise to the dispute? And does that agreement set out how these things are going to be dealt with? And Mm -hmm. that's sort of a funny thing, because if it's an agreement that predates COVID, the likelihood that the agreement is going to answer this question is low. However, Mm -hmm. it actually might answer it. So you look for, and I'll tell you why in a moment, you look first at the agreement. If there's an agreement between the parties that a matter is going to be handled in a particular court or in arbitration before a particular set of arbitration rules, then that forum and their rules will determine it. So during COVID, a lot of courts came out with a wide array of rules about this. And so those rules would control. However, in my opinion, it is always best if the lawyers can agree to how what the protocol is going to be, how they're going to proceed. So I've been in some arbitrations where the parties initially disagreed, we're, we're going to delay till COVID's over, we're not going to delay, we're going to take depositions, we're not going to take them till we could do them in person. And they thought about it. And then if that's the case, either the court, if it's a judge, the court would decide or the court rules would determine it determine it or the arbitrator would decide because although some people might disagree, uh, in most arbitration settings, the arbitrator has a considerable discretion to determine these sorts of issues. But people thought about it like crazy over the past year. (laughs) So what I have advised clients to do, and I've also say spoken about this several times because I've taught 
I've taught at least a dozen courses for lawyers during COVID, maybe more all on camera, you know, that this way. And some I'm not on camera, some they're just recording and showing my PowerPoint. But I've discussed this specific topic in multiple courses. And what I have recommended is that clients, in view of what's happened with COVID, clients should do uh, what I call a contract audit. They should look at all their agreements and see, do these agreements deal with a situation like the one we've just had? And if, it, if they don't, they might wanna either change their standard agreements or see if they can negotiate amendments with other contracting partners so that parties agree on how they're gonna deal with this before a dispute arises. With respect to the transactional side where it's not a dispute, so there's not an arbitrator or a judge who's gonna decide, I think if people are engaged in a transaction, everything is about agreeing, agreeing on the price of the real estate or what the business is being sold for. So to me, part of it would be when you're negotiating the transaction, you would at the outset determine, the parties would determine, are we going to have a mutual site for sharing information? How are we going to do that? Um, that are we going to meet in person? Is it less expensive to do it? by Zoom, et cetera. So uh, to me, it, it starts with the parties and their lawyers agreeing, but ultimately it depends if you're in a forum that sets the rules, it's what those rules are. Fascinating. Thank you for sharing. I just learned a bunch in that. That's fascinating. I think it's up to negotiation, it sounds like, and it's also case by case. And it sounds like it's an extra piece of the process that has to be determined uh, before moving forward. In that, have you found, especially as you know, this term location agnostic has really become a, a common term I've heard a lot and being used a lot in regards to, you know, it doesn't really matter where you are, it matters what kind of value you provide and how you can help people and, and provide value ultimately. Has your geographic client base change because of the pandemic? And then, you know, post pandemic, do you plan on continuing to expand or do you plan on continuing to be in, in the in the, the states that you have offices and so on? So the idea of being location agnostic is not really uh, ideal for lawyers. And what I mean by that is lawyers have to be licensed in jurisdictions in which they practice and jurisdictions in which they serve clients. And there's been considerable debate about what that means in light of what's happened. Mm. So here's an example. I actually am speaking to you from um, Arizona, where, where I have my principal residence, yet my law firm is headquartered in Philadelphia, yet I'm personally licensed in New York, where I also have an office, in Pennsylvania, where I have an office, and in Arizona, where I have an office. So it's, and that's a lot of offices to have there, <laughs> as you can imagine. Yeah. But in any event, even if I didn't have an office here, like a formal office here in Arizona, I live in Arizona, and I'm licensed to practice in Arizona. But okay. let's say that instead, that I was licensed to practice in just Pennsylvania. And because of COVID, I decided that it was more enjoyable to quarantine in Florida, where I'm not licensed. So the issue becomes, can I serve clients in Florida, or for that matter, in California, in Montana, whatever, because what difference does it make? So right. for lawyers, you need to be really careful that you are serving clients in which jurisdictions in which you're licensed. And my team is licensed in nine or 10 jurisdictions, not only the jurisdictions in which we may maintain a physical presence. And then again, prior to COVID, some 
jurisdictions, New York is one, would not let you serve clients if you didn't maintain an office there, like mm. a physical office there. Mm. So I don't know if New York has changed that or not, because I still maintain my office there despite COVID. So I haven't had to focus on whether that's an issue. So for lawyers, I think you cannot be as agnostic as you could be if you are a technology advisor or uh, various other things that may not have the same mm-hmm. licensing. In fact, it's such a serious issue, the one, the question you raised, that the American Bar Association came out with a detailed opinion. And the consensus, but their opinion is advisory because each state could do whatever it wants with its licensing. But the consensus is that if you are living in one place, but you're licensed in another, you can serve clients in the place you're licensed, but you cannot hold yourself out in any way as being available to serve clients in the place in which you live if you're not licensed. Hmm. So it's a really sophisticated Hmm. ethics question as to what you're doing and how you could do it. Fascinating. Great. And then, yeah, kind of the second part to that question was, do you plan on expanding your geographic? Are you you know, obviously expanding your team into more areas and getting licensed in in more states or what's your thoughts on that? Absolutely. We're planning on expanding. It's interesting because my, my firm has been in business for 11 years before that nearly for nearly 30 years, almost. I worked at big firms and I had a stint in government as well. And initially I don't think I contemplated being anywhere beyond, let's say, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania. But our team is authorized to practice in New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Washington, D.C., South Carolina, Florida, Ohio, Kentucky, and Arizona. But we want to expand our presence in Florida, where we don't have a physical office, and therefore, but we have a lawyer who is licensed there, and she has an office independently. We're interested in expanding in the Southwest, in where I am right now as well. Okay. The Southwest is booming. And, you know, we'd always like to have someone in California, but California is a very challenging jurisdiction in that it, you can't become a lawyer in California without taking the bar exam, meaning there's no reciprocity. I'm not sure if you know what I mm. mean by that, but basically if you are licensed in one jurisdiction as a lawyer, you can frequently apply and be admitted by motion into another jurisdiction because sure. you pass the bar exam in the first jurisdiction. But there are several states around the country that don't do that. California happens to be one of them. Florida is another, where even if you have 40 years experience, you would have to take the bar exam again. So California is one of those. So you have to get someone who's licensed in California. It's not as if I'm going to go apply and I can do that as I was pretty much able to do in Arizona with my prior licenses. So that makes it harder to expand unless you, you have to bring in lawyers who are already licensed to certain places. But to me, I see the growth, really big growth in the southern part of the United States, like North and South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, and in the Southwest, Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, and the West generally, which is Oregon, Idaho, Washington, Montana, I guess. So we're looking at all of those places as we think about the reality is it's not so much dealing with the clients remotely, but can our team communicate effectively? And the reality is we literally could be anywhere except on that space the spaceship or whatever it is that apparently Jeff Bezos is going off <laughs> Right. So I'm telling you that might be the next horizon for a lawyer. Totally. But it probably won't it. be during my professional life that it will be commonplace, I don't think. Sure, sure. 
That's great. Well, thanks for thanks for sharing. And kind of in that same vein, I'd love to kind of refocus the questions around culture and your internal team communicating and creating a culture. And I know you mentioned you were already a, a pretty remote or at least a hybrid model pre-pandemic, during the pandemic, and then moving forward. What things do you do to kind of maintain a culture internally with having a distributed workforce and not everyone being in the same location? So, you know, we had a head start. And the reason we had a head start is because we had lawyers in multiple locations. We were already sort of set up to do this fairly well. Uh, In addition, I uh, relocated to Arizona before COVID. It had nothing to do with COVID and applied to be licensed here. So I was already not with my team in our principal office in Philadelphia, and I was commuting back and forth. And then COVID hit, so obviously I couldn't commute. But my team is a lot of working parents, not just working mothers, but working fathers as well. And a lot of the people on my team are also in what I call the sandwich generation, where they've got parent obligations and childcare obligations. Mm. And so we needed to be as flexible as possible to accommodate accommodate talented people and not lose them. But when COVID struck, we added some things that I think have been successful for us. We started to have virtual team meetings frequently on a Friday afternoon um, using East Coast time, uh, Friday afternoon, where we would Mm -hmm. have a theme. We might literally play a game. We would send our team members care packages, fun care packages for them to enjoy while we were having our team meetings. So we might send everyone, you know, a basket of summer treats or a holiday treats. And then we'd all get on the, the Zoom together and have a cocktail or a you know, a non-alcoholic cocktail and just chat about anything. It wouldn't have to be work. Then we have team meetings every two weeks for all the lawyers only with me. And everybody goes through what their stresses are, what they want help with. Um, And then I have smaller subgroups. So we do the entire team, which is the professional staff and the lawyers. We do subgroups of the lawyers and we try to make at least enough of them purely social and the social ones are optional. We don't mandate, but virtually everyone does come on. And then I think the best thing we did, which wasn't my idea, but I absolutely loved it. And it was big success is we had a virtual holiday party and our holiday Mm -hmm. party was a a gingerbread making competition with teams and we were in breakout rooms (laughs) making our teams and working with our teams. And then we all joined and I I think everyone voted on which gingerbread houses they thought were the best, et cetera. So sounds really funny, but we also, for that, everyone was welcome to have a friend, a relative, their children, a guest. Mm -hmm. You could have whoever you wanted help you with your gingerbread house and be part of it. I mean, these sound sort of trite, but I think they were helpful in trying to maintain a, an intimacy that we'd like to have at our firm that we couldn't have during COVID. So good. I love that. I've actually, you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of lawyers on this series and our clients as well. And I haven't seen somebody do, I've seen them do, you know, social time or social hours or things like that, but you, you gamified it. You made a game out of it, especially the gingerbread houses. And that's awesome because I can imagine lawyers are not competitive at all. And so to make a game out of it, I think humans are competitive in to, to a certain extent and to make a game out of it is awesome because it, it, uh, it creates that competition and it creates camaraderie and teamwork and super cool. I love that. I'm going to bring that up to my boss and be like, Hey, we need to have 
Um, so I'm just, yeah, it's, it's team building, right? Is what you're, is what you're doing mm-hmm. at its, at its yes. core. And, um, I love that. Super cool. Well, Thanks we, for sharing. We did another thing like that actually recently. Okay. We had mandatory technology training and we, okay. it was entirely in a game for, in a game show format with okay. teams and everyone in the firm had to do it. And I was stunned at how good it was. I didn't have to plan it. So it was good for sure. me, but it yeah. was really fun. And everyone learned a lot with some, whereas if we just had someone speak to us about our technology, I think we would have been, had a lot of restless souls at their computers. Interesting. Well, we all know technology is for those that don't love it. um, And I work for a tech company, but I'm one of the few people on the team that loves the outcome of technology. I actually don't care how it works. And I think the vast majority of consumers are like that. It, uh, they want outcomes. They don't care about how the box works or how the software works. Um, that's super interesting. What program did you guys use or did your IT provider come in and do Our it? Our provider um, you did it. Okay. And it was a traditional game show that you'd see on TV. It was really stunned at how fun it was. And I would totally recommend that format of training super for anything, cool. not just technology. So you know, I think it would be really good for diversity and inclusion training or mm. sexual harassment training. It, sure. People really paid attention. Um, it kept everyone engaged, which is the point. And I think that's harder to do when you're in your house. So no doubt. And with a subject that you honestly don't care about when it, or, or it's something that's not, it's not something that you're, you're passionate about or, or that you're afraid of. I think that's the, mm. I would say that's the best way to describe it for a lot of people mm. that it's just intimidating. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. I'm going to wrap us up with actually one more question here. And it's actually on that. And it's really around cybersecurity. And I'd love to hear from your, your perspective, Fran, on what, what are the things of your firm or your IT provider or your IT team? What have you guys been doing in the past year or two to, to kind of increase your, your cybersecurity? Because I think to your point, there's a lot of fear uh, around cybersecurity, especially with the recent attacks and people don't know what to do. So I'd love to hear from your perspective. What are some things your organization's done and, and, and continuing to do? So um, I think that cybersecurity is the biggest struggle we have with technology in the legal profession, the biggest challenge, because the exposure is huge. You're, you're handling confidential information, often of an immense value. So we have all kinds of software to detect spam, to block it, to give us a chance to, you know, to check email that's been moved to spam to see if we want to accept it or not. Okay. We constantly change our passwords and they're getting longer mm. and more complicated. We have, of course, insurance. And I don't, I think everyone has to have that kind of insurance, however costly it may be. Um, we have a virtual private network with multiple levels of security and multiple password levels. I mean, for me to get to the point where I can get on here with you, I have to go through various stages of typing passwords and all sorts of things. And we keep adding to that. Um, the other thing is because we serve a lot of Fortune 500 companies, we are required to meet their cybersecurity standards that are the same for us, as far as I can tell, as, as if we were a law firm with a thousand lawyers. Mm. That's a really daunting thing for a smaller firm and very costly. But among other things, we do not store our information in the cloud. We actually have equipment in a room. (laughs) So, Mm. um, and I guess that's because I wasn't quite ready to go to the cloud. But the last time we had to upgrade our servers, I didn't want to go to the cloud. So we have a server room. We have to get to our server room. Okay, you'd have to get through security on the ground floor. 
You have to get through the, the, you'd have to have the keys to get into our office. You then would have to have the multiple keys to get into the server room, which is also has to have a camera and various alarm systems. And there are only two or three people who can have access to that room. Most people on our team cannot get in there. Um, and I think big companies are expecting that. We also keep a log of everyone who comes into our space, but also of everyone who goes into that room for any reason and when mm. that happens. So, and these, those sorts of things are the things that we are being asked to do by our clients. And these are things that firms of the largest size and complexity, you know, in terms of matters that are being handled also do. So we're trying to follow exactly the standards expected of a mega firm. And I think law firms of all sizes, if they're representing clients, especially business clients and government clients, that's a necessity. So also we don't open any attachments that we don't know came from the sender. We mm. literally, if there's an attachment, we check to make sure that the address from the email appears to be, is really the address as opposed to like a fake show is my name, but it's really not for me sort of thing. So those are the things we're doing. And some of them seem primitive, but but they work and others are more sophisticated. Yeah, no, I, in fact, a lot of those things are the best practices for cybersecurity data and, and kudos to you for heading that on. And I think to your point, you you mentioned a, a critical factor that forces you to step up your cybersecurity efforts and that is working with Fortune 500 companies. And whether it's SOC 2 or ISO or the NIST framework, a lot of these Fortune 500 companies require anybody that works with them to have the best practices in place. And um, I'm sure you've gone audited or you've had some sort of questionnaire you've had to fill out to work with them, like, like you've mentioned. And, and so to have that requirement to, to be able to work with those clients is, is, a, is a blessing uh, and a challenge uh, as well, because you're 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 forced to to put in the best practices, which is the best for your clients, all your clients, right? And you also yep. get a new client out of it, or able to work with the Fortune 500 yeah. company. We we routinely have to report and answer massive questionnaires about these things for lots of clients. So they're fairly um, they're very sophisticated clients, and they have sophisticated expectations. And so every client is the beneficiary of, of our adherence to those standards. Love it. That's fantastic. Everyone benefits from it. Super cool. Well, friend, this has been a super great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for all your thoughts and, and perspectives and knowledge and expertise. Thanks everyone for listening to the Best Tech Practices for Small Organizations podcast presented by NW Techs. To learn more about NW Techs and how we help small organizations tackle IT and cybersecurity challenges, visit us at nwtechs.com. Thanks again, Fran, for being on the show. Thank you. Take care, Taylor.